2 Timothy 3, Sin and Judgment. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness although they have denied its power, and avoid such as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. But you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Amen. Sin and judgment in this chapter, it entails a contrast, a contrast of the way the last days will be and are, that is in verses 1 to 13. In the last days, this is the way men will be. This is the way the world will be. This is the way unbelievers will be. This is the way fake, phony Christians will be. We know that that includes, this description includes the fake Christians because it says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. There are included in this list those who are nominal Christians, those who pretend to be Christians, but they're really not. The contrast is then made in verses 14 to 17. In contrast to the way the world is, in contrast to the way the visible church is, in contrast to the way the majority of Christians are, we ought to be like verses 14 to 17. Just as Timothy was that way, we ought to be that way. This is a comparison of what sin is and righteousness is in this chapter. Sin according to verses 1 to 13, righteousness according to 14 to 17. A description of sin and its consequences in judgment. Verse 1, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Often, because of distractions, disappointments, decisions, we have lost track of the way God has explained in the Bible 
the world will be. He says to realize this. Don't let anything get in the way of understanding these truths. That in the last days, difficult times will come. We are in the last days. We know we are in the last days because Hebrews 1, 1 to 2 tells us that when Christ appeared in the world, the last days began. Be- the last days are between the first and second comings of Christ. Between the first and the second comings of Christ. Hebrews 1, 1 says... God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. In these last days, God spoke to us in His Son. He means in the first coming, in the incarnation That's when the last days began. The last days, however, continue. They continue even till now. 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 18. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. It is the last hour. By hour, he does not mean, as we do in modern times, say hour of the clock, 24 hours a day. He's talking about hour in a general, generic way, meaning the last time or the last days. Jude further tells us we are in the last days. Jude 17 to 19. Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there shall be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. Those who act contrary to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, as recorded by the apostles, they are the ones who are the troublemakers, they are the wicked, they are the unbelievers of the last days. We are in the last days. Last days does not mean, in the Bible, a few days, literally like five days or seven days or 14 days or 30 days before Jesus reappears before the second coming of Christ. That's not the way the Bible is using the phrase. So if the last days are now, we are living in the last days, and this description in verses 2 or from 1 to 13 describes our era, our period of time, our lifetime. This is the way the world is. We must understand it because many times we have a very gullible superficial understanding of the world that everything is calm and peaceful. If it's calm and peaceful in my life, then it must be everywhere else. But that's not the case at all. It is a time of difficulty, as he says. Difficult times will come. Why are the times difficult? Because men live according to verses 2 to 13. What do evil men do? What do pretenders of the faith do? What do those who are charlatans, who are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing, what do they do? These are the sins they commit, and they refuse to repent of sins for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins, Jesus preached in Luke 24, 46-47. They practice these, refuse to repent, refuse to overcome, refuse to seek help, refuse to do what is right in the sight of the Lord to stop being this way. What is it? What are their sins? Verse 2. They are lovers of self. We should not love ourselves in this kind of sinful love. 
we should be loving our neighbor as ourselves. Whatever is basic and essential in taking care of ourselves, we should have the same concern for others. But when we are introspective, when we are self-focused, it's a sin. Woe is me. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. I wish I had more friends. I wish everybody liked me. So on. I wish I had a lot of money. That's being a lover of self. Lovers of money. Money ought to be used. We must use money. It's a tool in the world that God has given to us, but we should not love it. If we love it, we hate God, according to Matthew 6.24. He will either hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You either love money or you love God. Boastful. Boastful and arrogant. Boastful, that has to do more with it's a fruit of pride to boast or to brag about one's actions, one's abilities, one's skills. To be arrogant is more verbal and to manifest that pride in arrogant words. Your words have been arrogant against the Lord, Malachi said to the people. That's how pride is manifested. Revilers, they revile God, they revile angelic majesties, they revile the people of God. To revile means they speak evil of them. They denounce them, they hate them, they despise. Revilers, they are blasphemers because they are offending God and offending the angels of God and offending the people of God on the earth. Disobedient to parents. Rebellion is in the human heart from infancy. Rebellion is there. And it must be curbed and disciplined. However, in our era, parents are not disciplining their children. The schools encourage disobedience. The media... News media encourages disobedience. Social media encourages disobedience. Movies encourage disobedience. Music encourages disobedience. But that should not be characteristic. The parents themselves should not permit it, and the children should not disobey. Ungrateful. Ungrateful. Ungrateful for the necessities of life. With food and covering, with these we shall be content. Unbelievers are ungrateful to God and the way God manifests His goodness, His abundance in the earth by giving health, by giving food, by giving clothing, by giving shelter. They are ungrateful. However, it is delivered and manifested to them. Unholy. Unholy. God is holy. You shall be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 13-17. God is holy, but when people have no concern for holiness, they are unbelievers. They will go to hell. Hebrews 12, 14-17, it teaches that we ought to pursue peace with all and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. They are also unloving people, verse 3. Unloving. They tout love. All the world, what does the world need? The world just needs love. Let's just love one another. Let's just get along. They tout it. They spout it. They talk about it. They sing about it. They preach it. But they don't have the true biblical love. And therefore, they are unloving according to God's definition, God's estimation of how they practice love. There is a true love, a true way to practice love, but they are unloving because they don't love <clears throat> they don't love God and the people of God according to the word of God. Irreconcilable. You offended me and then an apology is presented and then the offended does not forgive. That's being irreconcilable. 
whenever repentance is offered, then there should be forgiveness. But when one does not forgive another who repents, then he is irreconcilable. He doesn't want anything to do with peace and harmony, friendship, or restoration of relationship. Malicious gossips. A gossip is one who loves to share sensational stories about other people for the sake of excitement. That's what sensational stories are. They excite, they arouse the senses within one to share juicy details about other people. But are they doing anything to help? No. They just like to share the juicy details. That's a gossip. But in this case, it's a malicious gossip also. It's accomplishing ill will towards another. It's accomplishing ill will towards another. Our lips should be lips of edification. That is, when we share about other people, it should be for the benefit of the other and for ourselves to know the Lord more, to know the truth more, and to help the other if the other one is willing to receive our help. Without self-control, no self-control, no self-control of mouth, no self-control of the senses, of the basic bodily needs, no self-control of eating, no self-control in drinking, no self-control in spending, no self-control in sleeping, sleeping too much or sleeping too little, no self-control, no discipline in one's life. Brutal, brutal. Should we not be practicing kindness? But people toward one another can be very brutal, both physically and verbally brutal. And brutality is unjustified when it is aggression or over-retaliation. That's brutality. Brutality is not self-defense. Brutality is not protection of oneself or family or friends. That's not what he means by brutal. That is wrongfully doing something to another. That's brutality. Haters of good. People know the difference between good and evil, but they pursue evil so much, it shows that they hate good. They hate doing good. They know in their conscience, but despise it. Verse 4, treacherous. To be treacherous is to be a traitor. To be treacherous is to be a betrayer. To be treacherous is to say, I love you, and then do everything in the opposite way and even backstab the one that you just told, I love you, you're my friend. That's treachery. Reckless. Reckless related to without self-control. They just do what they want without any concern for the well-being of others, for the danger of others or the protection of others. They say whatever they want, they do whatever they want, and they don't care what others think or how they might feel by what they say and do. That's a reckless person. Conceited. Conceit is a synonym of being boastful and arrogant. Conceit has more to do with the mind or the attitude of the person. The attitude, pride also produces conceit. The root of all this is pride. So conceit is thinking more highly of yourself than you should. Looking down on others when there's no cause for that. Whether that's because someone else doesn't have as much money or someone is not as tall or or as handsome or beautiful or well-spoken, we cannot be conceited and look down on others for these kinds of reasons. That's what conceit is. To think that I am privileged, he's not, so I won't care for him. Like James 2. 
James 2, 1 to 13, a poor man walks into the assembly and the people pay attention to the rich man and ignore the poor man and give the poor man a bad seat by the footstool. Verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Our word is hedonism. Hedonism has no place in Christianity. There is no such thing as Christian hedonism. It would, like, it would be like saying a Christian atheist or a Christian Satanist. There is no such combination. A Christian kidnapper, a Christian murderer, a Christian thief. These don't go together. Nor does loving pleasure go with loving God. Pleasure is given to us in moderation, however the Bible describes it. But when we indulge, when we go in excess, when it is the focal point of our thinking and daily life, that's a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. Verse 5, here we deal with the masquerade. Verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They hold to a form of godliness. They are pastors. They are elders. They are deacons. They are members of churches. They go to church. They sing songs when they go to church. They know the Bible some. They read the Bible some. Not as well as they should, but some. They know it some. What? They say they are Christians. Their names are John and Elizabeth. So, they hold to a form of godliness. Although they have denied its power. They deny the power. They pretend with religion. They are fakers. They show up. They appear to be godly and pursuing the things of God, but they're really not because they deny the power of God. And where is the power of God? The power of God is twofold, manifested. In the Word of God and the Spirit of God. It is manifested in the Word of God, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the Word of God that it is, which is the power of God. Where else is God's power residing? In His Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2, the whole chapter, is a combination of the Word and the Spirit, but especially towards the last half of the chapter, the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us in teaching us, in leading us, in guiding us in all things for the mind of Christ. They actually use the Bible, but they don't really believe in the Bible. They don't believe in its power because they don't use it correctly. They don't use it as they should to deal with the difficulties of life, to deal with the sins of life. They don't use the Bible and apply it the way the Bible means it and intends for the Bible to be practiced. Therefore, if they don't do it according to the Bible, they deny the power of the Bible. And the same with the Holy Spirit. They don't depend on the Holy Spirit. They depend on their spirit. They depend on their wisdom, not the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Spirit to change or transform a person's life from being dead to alive, from having a stony heart to a tender heart. They don't believe in these. That's why they don't practice. Now, when we come across someone with a form of godliness, someone who's called pastor, someone who is in the pulpit, Someone who claims to be a Christian. Someone who says, well, yeah, I, I read the Bible. 
here and there. I, I know what it says. I know what the gospel is. I believe. But they don't believe in its power. In word and spirit. They don't believe in it. What should we do with them? Should we affirm them? Should we assure them and say, well, that's good, that's fine, that's all God expects of you. He just expects you to hold to a form of godliness. You don't need to be pressing on. You don't need to be uh, pressing on to maturity. You don't need to make progress, as he mentions in verse 9, further progress. You don't need to make further progress. It's okay. That's not okay. The Bible tells us to avoid such as these. When we come across a pretender, when we come across a faker, when we come across a goat who's pretending to be a sheep, or a wolf pretending to be a sheep, we have to identify such and avoid them, he says. Avoid such as these. He doesn't say coddle. He doesn't say assure. He doesn't say reassure. He says avoid. If we don't avoid, we just disobeyed a command, a commandment. It says avoid. That's an imperatival verb. Imperatival verb issuing a command. Avoid such as these, which is also a, a matter to point out that the Bible, even in the New Testament, has many, many passages, like our passage, that says, gives us a list of what is evil and what is good. Contrary to antinomians who actually despise and revile people who are trying to please God by wanting to know what is good and what's evil. And they say, no, no, you're too preoccupied. You shouldn't be preoccupied. Just live. Just live. No. We ought to know as he's listing these sins. Then, verses 6 to 9. Verses 6 to 9, he speaks generally, and then he illustrates in verse 8 by the two magicians who... In the book of Exodus, Exodus chapters basically 1 to 15 or 1 to 13, they are in Egypt and the magicians of Egypt who believed in sorcery. By magicians, we're not talking about white magic, doing little tricks with your hands. He's not talking about white magic. He's talking about black magic, sorcery, divination, superstition, consultation with demons and the devil. <clears throat> These two men are named in verse 8. So, generally he speaks of this situation in the difficult times in which we live, but he illustrates with two ancient false teachers who were pretenders as well. These were on the outside, yet they were pretending how? By replicating the miracles of Moses. You see, Moses, he performed the miracles. The first few of them, these wicked magicians were able to replicate. And so people would say, okay, Moses, you say your God is the greatest. Well, look here. We worship the same God. We can do the same thing. Or they could say, we challenge your God. We challenge Our God is just as powerful as yours. Of course, they were only able to do it initially, but not for all ten miracles. Not all ten plagues. And God proved that he was superior to them. So generally first, verses 6 and 7, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just like modern advertisements, just like salesmen, who do they target? Do they target the men primarily? 
No. Primarily, they target women. Commercials, ads, salesmen knocking on the door, or salesmen inside the store. They will first try to talk to the wife if they see a husband and wife enter the store. Correct? This is what happens also in religion. It happens right here. He says so. This is not invented by man, and Paul is not demonizing women. He's explaining their nature and what actually happens when they are uncareful and their men are not protecting them. These men enter into households and captivate weak women. Weak women. Why and what, what characterizes them? Why are they weak? What characterizes them? They are weighed down with sins. Sometimes knowingly and at other times unknowingly. But they are weighed down with sins. So if they are weighed down with sins, the sins are a heavy burden on their shoulders and they have to bend forward and can hardly move about in the proper way, circumspect and upright, doing what they need to do. They can't do it because they are weighed down with sins. Also, they are led on by various impulses. It is characteristic because of the emotional side of women to let the emotions drive their decisions, drive their words, drive their actions, drive their values into thinking that their impulse is a right impulse, but they're deceived. It's not that way. At the same time, they're always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Yes, they will read the Bible more than their husbands will. We're talking about these who are enticed. We're not talking about a strong woman in the faith. We're talking about weak women. They'll read the Bible more than their husbands will. They'll know more of it more than their husbands. They will seek to go to church more than their husbands. But they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They're learning. They learn a little bit here. They learn a little bit there. They might learn a lot. But they have never come to the knowledge of the truth. When he says in verse 7, to come to the knowledge of the truth, it doesn't mean they don't know that the Bible teaches Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. He doesn't mean it that way. He means come to the knowledge of the truth so that it has saved your soul. That's why he said it in chapter 2, verse 25, 25 to 26. With gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. They are captivated and ensnared by the devil. That's the sense in which they have not come to the knowledge of the truth. It has not taken root. It has not resided. It has not changed their heart from stony to a heart of flesh or tender. First Timothy, First Timothy chapter four, First Timothy chapter four, verses six and seven. First Timothy chapter four, verses six and seven. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. But on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We must have nourishment from the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine but nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. 
These are old women who want to be amused and excited by fables instead of the Word of God. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11, 3 to 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. It all started in the Garden of Eden, and it started with the basic nature of women. Not because sin came, sin did come through the woman and the man, but the basic nature of the woman. Because Eve was perfect when the serpent deceived her. She was perfect when Satan enticed her. So that shows it's according to the nature of the woman, not only because of the presence of sin. And so both concepts together are brought together for us in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 11 to 15. 1 Timothy 2, 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. He says that they ought to receive instruction quietly, entire submissiveness, and remain quiet, not exercise authority or teach over a man. For two reasons. The first reason in verse 13, Adam was created first. And the second reason, verse 14, the woman was quite deceived when she was perfect. These are the reasons that we have to be extra careful. Husbands or men with their women, their wives, their daughters. Continuing in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 8. And just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected as regards the faith. The example of them opposing Moses in the book of Exodus is just one example. A real, concrete, actual example in history intended to illustrate for us that it will also happen to us. Remember that in 2 Timothy, the apostle warns us by name of false teachers. In chapter 1, 2 Timothy 1.15, he warned us of Figulus and Hermogenes, 2 Timothy 1.15. In chapter 2, chapter 2.17, Hymenaeus and Philetus, 2.17. Our chapter 3.8, Jonas and Jambres. And then in chapter 4, 2 Timothy 4, 4.10, Demas. And 4.14, Alexander the coppersmith. He mentions them so that we might know who they are. Now, are these people just a little bit off? Are these people just with a different opinion? Are these people believers? Are they saved? Are they going to heaven? He says in verse 8, they oppose the truth. How can we be opposers of the truth and go to heaven? He also says, men of depraved mind. Do to do men of depraved mind go to heaven? No. We have to have the mind of Christ, which is not depraved. It is perfect. Verse 8, rejected as regards the faith. Are they accepted? 
in relation to the faith? No, they are rejected, he says. They're outside the faith. Therefore, when men practice these sins, leading up to verse 8, he's making it very clear that he's describing unbelievers, no matter how much they profess to be believers. They are actually unbelievers. Verse 9, But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those came to be. They won't make further progress. What will happen? They progress or progress a little bit, somewhat, temporarily, but at a point, at a point, their true heart, at a point, their true nature rises to the surface. When it rises to the surface, they're not going to continue in progress, but what will they do? They will regress. They will backslide. They'll go backward. They will be like the dog that returns to its vomit. They will be like the hog that was cleaned up, but then was let loose and returns to wallowing in the mire. Second Peter 2.22 That's how they will be. They won't progress in the faith anymore. They regress. Not only will they regress, their folly will be obvious to all. When that happens, when that moment happens, they make temporary progress. But when they go back to their old ways, their old beliefs, their old friends, their old practices, when they go back, then their folly, their foolishness will be obvious to all. We'll know who they truly are. He says obvious. There's no doubt. The apostle is not speaking in gray, cloudy terms. He's speaking in obvious, evident, clear terms. Because God means for everything to us to be conspicuous, whether we are true believers or are not true believers, whether they are true believers or are not true believers. God meant it to be obvious. Verse 10. But you, you Timothy, and it should be true of us, but you followed my teaching. Conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. The apostolic teaching of the Apostle Paul is 100% pure word of God. Contrary to liberal theologians, contrary to feminists, contrary to homosexuals, contrary to anybody else, any cultic leader who says, well, parts of Paul are true and other parts are untrue. No, his teaching came from Christ. Acts chapter 9, Galatians 1. His teaching came from Christ. Conduct. Paul was not a hypocrite. What he said privately from house to house and publicly was consistent, as he told the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, 17 to 38. He went house to house and he went public and everything he said and everything he did was in harmony, both privately and publicly. He was no hypocrite. He did not have two faces, a forked tongue. Purpose. What's his purpose? What is the purpose of Paul? What is the goal and purpose of the Christian life? 1 Timothy 1.5 But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's his purpose. Faith. True faith in Christ and faith that increases, that grows from faith to faith. Romans 1, 17. Or as he says in verse 9, further progress in faith. 
we grow progressively, we grow gradually, we mature day by day, month by month, year by year. That's what should happen to us. Patience. Patience. That should also grow. And patience is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, just as the next one is. Love is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Patience should be growing. Patience toward God. Patience toward one another. That should be evident and increasing. Love. Love of God. Love of our brother. Love of the brotherhood. Love of the brethren. That should be increasing and growing day by day. It should not revert to stagnation, callousness. That should not be the case. It should be increasing day by day. And then he says perseverance. Perseverance. God will teach us perseverance through trials. He teaches us perseverance through trials. He'll give us a small trial, and then next it might be a bigger trial, and then bigger and bigger and bigger. That's the way God shapes us. He fashions us. He makes us so that we are prepared in case one day, one day we are told at the threat of our life, If you deny Christ, I'll let you live. What will we do when that happens? Are we going to deny Him? James tells us about how God teaches and shapes us with perseverance. James 1, 2-4 Consider it all joy. James 1, 2 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. How exactly, how exactly does God test us? Paul says, just as James does, 2 Timothy 3.11, he says, persecutions sufferings persecutions sufferings persecutions come from those who oppose the truth of Christ as the people of Christ as the bride of Christ as the church of Christ is faithful to Christ they oppose Christ yes their animosity is directed toward us but really they have hostility animosity toward Christ himself. They hate Christ, but they can't do anything to Christ because he's in heaven. But they'll take it out on us. Persecutions and sufferings. It will happen against us, the body of Christ. Just as they persecuted the apostle, they will persecute us. One example of these persecutions in one of these places he mentions here, we find in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. 13, 44 to 52. Acts 13, 44. This is in Pisidian Antioch. Pisidian Antioch. 1344, and the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For thus the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you should bring salvation to the end of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. 
and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews aroused the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Often persecution is aroused because of jealousy. I don't like how calm and peaceful you are. I don't like it how circumspect you are. I don't like it how you used to have a foul mouth, but now you don't. I don't like that. It makes it bothers me. So I have to say something wrong about you. I have to mock you. I have to rally all the co-workers against you. That's how it works. But the promise is what persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord delivered me. The Lord will deliver us. Ultimately, He may not, but regularly He does deliver us. And when He delivers us, even if we are finally put to death, we will go from this life and enter safely into His heavenly kingdom, which is what He says in 2 Timothy 4.18. 2 Timothy 4.18, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. If that is the case, we should not be anxious. Just do the will of God and entrust our souls to a faithful Creator in doing what is good. 2 Timothy 3.12 And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says, indeed. Indeed, it will happen this way. He doesn't say it might happen. He says, will be persecuted. He doesn't say, could be persecuted. He says, will be persecuted. It naturally raises the question, why is it that we are not persecuted? It doesn't always have to be physical. It might be physical. It might lead to that. But why are we never slandered? Individually, why, why does that not happen? Why is it that nobody sp- speaks ill of us? Why is it that nobody falsely accuses us? Fault finds. Why is it that that doesn't happen? And the reason, he says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If we are chameleons in church with a happy face and then in the world with with a desire to be like the world, to please our friends. We talk like them. We act like them. We go places with them when we are in the world, at school, at our job, wherever we might go with them afterwards and while we are with them. If we are behaving like them, they're not going to persecute us. But if we are godly in their midst, then they will persecute us. They'll say, huh, you think you're holier than I am? You think you're a better Christian than I am? You think you're perfect? These are the false accusations they will uh, lob in our direction. That's how the persecution usually happens. It's usually verbal. And sometimes it becomes practical. Verse 13. But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Is the world going to become a better place? What the world needs now is love, sweet love, right? Let's make the world a better place, the song says, if we just practice love. Their love, not biblical love, their love. But the Bible says it's not going to happen. We ought to strive for true love, biblical love, 
But it will not be that way. Evil men and imposters, they are the charlatans. They are the ones that wear a mask. They are the ones who pretend to be sheep when they are goats and wolves in sheep's clothing. They will get worse. It will become worse until the Lord returns. They deceive, and they are also deceived. That is a full list, a comprehensive list, a description of sin that we ought to avoid. On the other hand, what should we pursue? He says in 14, You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Continue. You learn them. You know who taught you. So continue in them. Verse 15, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings. Who taught Timothy? Who are or were his primary teachers? We do know that the Apostle Paul was. That's why he calls Timothy my beloved son. 2 Timothy 1.2 My beloved son. Paul lived a consistent life. He didn't change his doctrine. He didn't change his life throughout his Christian life. He was consistently pursuing the love of Christ, consistently seeking to please Christ. There was no inconsistency in Paul. So Paul was one of his teachers and primary teacher in adulthood. But the apostle also said childhood. Where do we learn this? We learn it in 2 Timothy 1.5. 2 Timothy 1.5. What did he learn from childhood or from infancy? 2 Timothy 1.5 For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice and I am sure that it is in you as well. Long before the Apostle Paul met Timothy Timothy's grandmother and mother were Timothy's teacher. How so? When? In the home, in the family setting, day-to-day experiences, day-to-day circumstances, day-to-day reading Scripture together, day-to-day memorizing Scripture together, day-to-day singing Scripture together, day-to-day knowing what's in the Bible whenever the child grows and grows and grows, and then he's able to deal with conflicts. He begins to go to school or make friends whether at school, in church, in the neighborhood, and a conflict arises. Well, what are you going to do when your 10-year-old or 15-year-old has a conflict? What will the mother and the grandmother teach the child? The Scripture on how to resolve that conflict, how to deal with the conflict. This is what Timothy learned. But also he learned, and most importantly, he learned about true salvation in Christ. He learned about the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He learned the gospel from infancy. His grandmother and mother primarily based on the Old Testament taught him the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. They were preaching the gospel from the Old Testament. And specifically, that gospel entails wisdom, salvation, faith, Christ, Jesus. He says right there. One gospel from Genesis to Revelation. One way of salvation. They taught him that. They did not teach him universalism, ecumenicalism, where all roads get to God. It doesn't matter They didn't teach him anything like that. They taught him Christ as Lord and Savior. Only salvation in him. 16 and 17. Also, they taught him 
sanctification. They taught him maturity. They taught him the Christian life, just as we should. 16 and 17 deal with day-to-day Christian living. All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture inspired by God. This is the word that sometimes is rendered God-breathed. Is inspired by God is sometimes rendered all Scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God. God is the one speaking, and when He exhales His words, they go into the prophet, and then the prophet writes the words of God. The apostle writes the words of God. They are not the words of men. Men are the vehicles. Men are the agents. Men are the instruments of transcribing what God says. But the words are the words inspired by God, breathed out by God. The Bible is not using the word inspired the way a piece of poetry might inspire us and arouse certain thoughts or memories or emotions. The Bible is not using the word inspired as a song might inspire us to think about something about life. That's not the way the Bible is using the word inspired. Inspired means inspired by the Holy Spirit. You see the word spirit is right there in the middle of the word inspired. This is a verbal form, but S-P-I-R, that's a remnant or the basic use of the word spirit. Inspired by God. If the Bible is inspired by God, then what? Verses 16 and 17 teach the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. Actually, the authority, because it's inspired, the inspiration of Scripture, because it's inspired, but also its sufficiency. Primarily, in the rest of it, the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is adequate. The Bible is what we need. The Scripture is what we need to know God and to ensure that we are saved by God in Christ and that we know what God expects of us and how to live once we are converted. The Bible contains it. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. We don't need the philosophers. We don't need the theologians. We don't need the psychologists. We don't even need the medical doctors to tell us how to get from here to heaven. We don't need anybody. We don't need the wisdom of the back porch or the front porch. We need the wisdom of the Word of God. And that's why he says it's profitable, beneficial. It'll edify us in this direction. For teaching. Why do we teach the Bible? Why is that our preoccupation? Why is that our focus? Because it says so right here. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. When someone has gone astray, then that someone must be reproved. And that means that it's going to hurt. It's going to sting. It's not going to sound right to the flesh when the reprover is reproving the reproved. But that's what the Bible does. And that's the way we're supposed to use the Bible to help someone get on the right path. For correction. To show what is the correct way. Listen, I reproved you, but let me correct what you just said. Let me correct what you just did. Let me correct the pattern of behavior I've seen. And I'll show you from the Bible. For training in righteousness. Do we need to know what righteousness is in contrast to wickedness? Yes. And it requires training. No athlete is trained in a day. No athlete is trained in six months or one year. Not the gold medalist. It takes constant, arduous, daily, sweat, discipline, knowing the rules. It takes everything. That's the way it is in the Christian life. 
The Christian life is not intended to be comfy and comfortable. It's not intended to be a life that is coddled and pampered. That's not the Christian life. It's supposed to be a life of training in righteousness. Verse 17. That the result or the purpose. The purpose so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The man of God will be adequate or prepared. He will have whatever he needs to know the will of God and do the will of God with the Word of God. And he will be equipped. Equipping is required in order to carry out your task. In every employment, the workers are equipped in one way or another to accomplish their tasks, their jobs, their duties. And in our Christian life, it is the Word of God that equips us for every good work. Not the words of men, not the wisdom of men, but the Word of God. This is the difference between sin and righteousness, sin and judgment. Let's heed these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.